Welcome to the How Did You Get Into That podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an inspiring interview or encouraging message to help you find and do work you love. Now, here's your host, Grant Baldwin. What is up, my friends? Welcome to another episode of How Did You Get Into That? My name is Grant. It's so good to have you here with us today. We've got a great guest excited to bring this to you today. Today we are talking with my friend Ray Edwards. Ray is a guy who is a copywriter. He actually came up in the broadcast radio world and saw the writing on the wall of where that industry was headed and decided he was going to pivot and shift directions a little bit. So he has a great story about how he made a pivot in his career later in his career. He'd been in broadcasting almost 30 years. And uh, so we talk about how he made that shift, how he made that pivot and what he's doing today, how he got into being a copywriter and how other writers, there's a lot of people that we know listen to the show who are interested in writing and want to do some form of writing. So we talk about different things that they can do to get started. We also make sure you stick around in the bonus material. You can download that at grandbaldon.com slash Ray Edwards. You can also, if you're listening to this on an app or a mobile device, you can download that within the show notes right there. Just click that link at the top of the page and check that out. So let's get into it. Here's my interview with my buddy Ray Edwards. Enjoy. Greetings, my friends. Welcome to another episode of How Did You Get Into That? Today, we are joined by Ray Edwards, who is a podcaster, copywriter, got his hand in a couple different things. So excited to get into Ray's story and journey today. So Ray, what is up, man? Welcome to the show. I am so glad to be here, and I'm excited to talk about how did I get into that, because it's a question I often ask myself. It is. I think we're all asking ourselves that in some way. So today, though, it's not about asking ourselves, how did Ray get to what he's doing today? So how would you describe it? We just met at a cocktail party or met somewhere, and, and I was to ask you what it is that you do, or someone asked you, how do you describe what it is that you do today? Well, <laughs> that's always the million-dollar question. Sure. Uh, it, de- it depends on what party I'm at and who I'm talking to. If I, wanna have, <laughs> if I don't want to have a long conversation with them, I tell them I'm a marketing consultant, and that usually shuts down the talk. Yep, yep. Uh, uh, but uh, <laughs> if, really, if I want to explain to people what I do, I describe it this way. I craft the words that help you sell your products, your ideas, or your services that persuade people to buy into those products, ideas, or services. And I do that on websites, in audio, video, text, paper, wherever you can craft words, I'm there crafting them behind the scenes. I used to tell people I was a typing salesman, which I thought was really clever, but nobody really clever. understood what that meant. So interesting. That. So is that mostly for digital products or is that for online or offline products or what does that primarily consist of? Primarily it's digital products, uh, membership websites or downloadable products that like a st- home study course or something that you may download online, email copy. I actually don't do writing copy for clients anymore. I stopped doing that quite some time ago. Occasionally, a friend of mine will twist my arm and get me to do a project for them. But it's, that's very, very exceedingly rare. Uh, now, I write copy for my own products. And that's really every good copywriter that I encounter, eventually they end up figuring out, hey, I'm writing copy for other people <laughs> that's selling their stuff. And by the way, that's in, as far as I know, that's the highest paid form of writing you can do. If you want to make a living as a freelance writer, writing sales copy is where the money is, unless you're Stephen King. Right. But you know, most of us are not Stephen King. The average income for a novelist, a published novelist in the USA last year, I believe, was $4,700 wow. for the year. So that's clearly, I'm not saying don't be a novelist, I'm just saying that's probably not your best bet if you want to make money. Your best bet is to write sales copy. But eventually, if you're good at writing sales copy, you figure out, I just wrote some copy. I got paid really well for it, but the people I wrote it for made $2 million. They got paid really, really well. 
So wouldn't it be smarter for me to be my own copywriter? And so that's how most of us end up doing our own stuff, making our own products, our own training courses or whatever. Some, you know, some copywriters I know, one of the greatest living copywriters that I have ever met, that's ever lived, is a guy named Gary Bensavenga. And he no longer writes copy for other people. He writes for his own product, which is olive oil by mail. Wow. It, yeah, exactly. I'm like, who joins an olive oil of the month club? No kidding. Well, he writes very good copy and he sells a lot of that stuff. Wow. So what are the type of products and services that you're, I guess not services, but just what are the products that you're selling today through your own copywriting? Well, we train and support people in starting, running, and growing their own business online. So one of the things should be pretty obvious that I would be able to train people in is how to write persuasive sales copy. Yeah. So we had a course for a long time that taught that. And we've recently, well, we took it off the market some time ago, but we're developing a brand new course that's more up to date. I think things have changed. Human psychology hasn't changed. So the principles of writing great copy, really, I don't think are any different now than they were from the, the time the first copy was written. Mm-hmm. But the environment in which we're writing is different. There's more signal to noise. I mean, there's, there's just more noise in the marketplace. So you have to write in a different way to be able to cut through and get people's attention. And people have their BS tolerance level <laughs> is much, much lower than it used to be. And by BS, I mean belief system, of course. Uh, of course, of course. That's what we were all thinking of. So prior to doing the copywriting, what were you doing? I was doing radio. I was okay. in the radio biz. I started in radio when I was 14 years old. My grandfather was a, an entrepreneur. He had, a, had, he had the strangest setup. He had, we lived in eastern Kentucky, and he had a, an auto shop where he did tune-ups, basically, and rebuilt carburetors. That was the two things he did the most. Mm-hmm. And then two steps up from the garage, he would you know, use that Gojo stuff to get the grease off his hands, take two steps up into his accounting office where he kept books for the local coal miners. Okay. And he was really good friends with and kept books for the local radio station there in Pineville, Kentucky. And I became enamored with the idea that people actually got paid to sit in that little radio booth and broadcast. Right. And so at the age of 14, I got my first part-time radio job. And I was bitten by the bug. And I was in the radio business for 27 years after that. Wow. Okay. So, so you have that first experience there. And then you go on for 27 years. What kind of stuff are you doing within radio for 27 years? Well, I started as a disc jockey. And then I figured out pretty quickly that the people who had the nicest cars in the parking lot at the radio station were not the disc jockeys. They were the salespeople. Right, right. And uh, I didn't become a salesperson, but I became a salesperson's friend. I started studying uh, marketing through some of the old marketing masters, you know, people like David Ogilvy. I, I read his stuff and mm-hmm. I read the Claude Hopkins and Robert Collier and John Caples. And I discovered a guy named Jay Abraham. Yeah. As I studied that stuff, I realized, you know, I could write this kind of stuff. I could put these kind of promotions together for our radio station customers. And so I was pretty quickly the go-to guy in the station for coming up with really great promotions and really great commercials for our clients or advertising clients. And being a disc jockey, that's like the slipperiest seat in the house in radio because if ratings go down or something bad happens, the first person they fire is the DJ. Yeah. We need to change the format of the station, change the DJs. And so, but I was, I won't say I was unfireable, but I was close to it because every time that they would be considering a wholesale staff change or something like that, it would always come down to, well, you can't let Ray go because the Ford account loves him and the swimming pool store loves him and whoever else I happened to be working with at the time. So I kind of made myself valuable in that way. And then I got into management and became a program director and station manager. And I, I realized, well, we could use these same direct response marketing techniques, direct mail, 
and direct sales type copy in marketing our stations to our listeners. So now I was serving both the advertising clients of the stations by helping them make more money. And I was serving the radio company that I worked for by bringing in more audience using these marketing techniques. And then along about 1999 or 2000, I began to realize radio was in deep trouble right. because there were things on the horizon that were coming up that were going to change the radio business. And sure. for two years, I was the chair of the agenda committee for the largest radio convention in North America, which was the country radio seminar in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And for two years, I tried to get them to do sessions on the impact of MP3 players and satellite radio on terrestrial radio. Right. And for two years, I got voted down because everybody on the panel basically believed that that stuff was a fad that was going to go away. That backfired. Time. Yeah, certainly did. So I decided I got to get out of this business eventually. What am I going to do next? And I realized, you know, people pay a lot of money for writing copy and creating promotions. And I started working with people online and that's how I transitioned. I mean, it was really, I've been doing the same thing really from the time I was 14. I wrote my first radio ad when I was 14. <laughs> what was it about the, like just writing a radio ad? I mean, cause that doesn't sound like the type of thing that would appeal or be intriguing to most 14 year olds, let alone most, you know, 34 or 40 year olds. So what was it about it that was just so intriguing or just kind of pulled you in? Well, you got to remember that I was in an entrepreneurial family. So my grandfather had his two businesses. My mom had a real estate business. Both my uncles had construction businesses. It was just the family way. So I understood about small business and about how important it was if you paid money for radio ads, which, you know, I saw my grandpa pay money for radio ads. I saw my mom pay money for radio ads and newspaper ads. And I knew that if they didn't perform, if they didn't bring business in the door, it was money lost. And so I had a sense of that. And my first radio ad was actually for my grandfather. Wow. And I, that was you know, really the motivator. I wanted to do a good job for him. And I don't know if it was, I wish I still had that ad. It probably was terrible. Right. But I had fun writing it. And but then pretty quickly, they discovered I could put sentences together in pretty logical order. So in the radio business, usually there's no paid copywriter on staff. They just get the DJs to write the copy for free. Which I would assume doesn't always turn out the best. No, it doesn't. And if you're buying radio ads, that's something you need to know about. You know, you buy yeah. a campaign from a radio station and you think, well, these professional broadcasters are going to do this great job for me. Often, not the case. Yeah. So whenever you are starting to get your feet wet in the radio industry and you're doing the disc jockey thing, are you enjoying it? Or is this just kind of like a, this is the next logical step in a progression moving up the proverbial radio corporate ladder? Or what were you thinking at that point? I'd love to tell you that it was a next logical step kind of thing, but there was none of that. There's no plan. No, I loved being a DJ. I thought it would help me get girls. Yeah, sure. It, it uh, Apparently, I was no more popular with girls after becoming a DJ <laughs> than I was before becoming a DJ. But I loved it. I loved listening to the old late night AM radio talk shows, mm-hmm. uh, the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. And I remember when Larry King was an overnight radio host. And I just loved hearing those voices come out of the radio. And I wanted to be that voice that came out of the radio. And so... Yeah. You know, apparently I love the sound of my own voice. Perhaps. And especially, I think, you know, within the 80s and 90s, you know, we were talking a little bit beforehand that my dad was a radio DJ for many, many years on a morning show for a, uh, like the major country music station in town. And it was kind of, it was interesting because he was kind of part of news that would happen and he was a part of people's day and people were going, you know, coming or going from work, I guess, oftentimes going to work. And he was a part of that, of each of people's morning. And so it seems like there's some type of, I don't know, in that 
in that era of radio that there's some type of, I don't know, nostalgia about it or just some type of interesting appeal to be that voice that goes with people to work or brings them home each day? Yeah, I did a morning show for a long time and it was the most fun I had in radio. And it was the most fun because we got to be creative every day. We were paid to be creative. We were paid to be funny. We were basically, we were paid to goof off. Sure. And people did love us. Not all people, but you know, the people that listened to the show and you had loyal listeners that would call and show up at every public appearance you made. And right. it was just fun. It was the fun feeling of connection to the community. And of course we got access to things that you know, normally might be more difficult for people to get access to because we were backstage at all the concerts and all the sports teams. We had access to those and it just was a different world. And one of my favorite things that happened was Disney opened up a radio studio in Florida. At the time it was called Disney MGM Studios. And I think now it's just called Disney Studios. Mm-hmm. It's one of their parks down there in Orlando. And they invited radio shows, morning radio shows from all across America to come and broadcast from their Disney radio studios. And so we did that I think five different times and they nice. paid for our whole family to come down. And I just did a, the show for a week from the studio. And by 10 o'clock in the morning, I was done. And my family and I went and enjoyed the park. And it was only years later when I actually had to pay for a trip to Disney that I realized how expensive <laughs> all that stuff was. We just did that trip a couple of weeks ago, in fact. So we went to Hollywood Studios and are, are very familiar with the expense of the parks today. So how long were you a DJ before you started noticing the other cars in the parking lot and realizing this may not be the long-term plan for you? Well, I noticed that early on. I didn't get into management until really it was uh, 1995. Mm-hmm. So, and that was because I had a, a sit down lunch with a friend of mine who was also a mentor and a consultant in the business. And he said, you know, Ray, you are a good DJ and you're a good manager, but you've got to choose one or the other. And I think you're a better manager than you are a DJ. And I actually, I love this guy. He's gone home to be with the Lord now, but I loved him and I still love him and I respected him. But I think he, he led me down a, I think that was an artificial choice. And so I ended up being management and I wasn't really happy as management. I liked having my sleeves rolled up and, you know, being right in the thick of things, not being in meetings and looking at spreadsheets. So I enjoyed it. I kind of crafted my own style of management. I I made it so that I worked independently of everybody else and I traveled around to the different stations and that was fun. But the thing I enjoyed most was being on the air. And the, the reason I made the transition was monetary. Of course, I wanted more income. But the taste of being able to create campaigns and promotions and see the direct effect on a business's bottom line was just a gas to me. It just really fired me up. So that let's, was one of my favorite things to do. Let's talk about that conversation that you had with that. It sounds like kind of somewhat of a mentor in your world. Mm-hmm. So whenever you have that conversation, he gives you some advice and you're kind of going back and forth on which direction you could go pulled in, in probably both directions. It sounds like. So how do you know whenever, cause I think a lot of people that are listening to this may be in a similar spot of maybe someone from the outside, like a well-meaning, well-intentioned, you know, family member or friend or someone in their space or industry is giving them some type of advice that may be conflicting with what maybe the path that they feel in their own gut to be going. How did you kind of rationalize that in your mind or, or know which way to go? Cause it sounds like you were, you know, they both had appeal to them, but you really wanted to stay in the DJ world. Well, I chose management because this person that I respected told me you're better at that than you are at this other thing. Yeah. And it was my choice, not his responsibility, but it was in some ways, I think the wrong choice for me. Now, I believe that God can redeem any decision we make in our life, and he can always make things work out for the best possible outcome for us, no matter what bad choices we make. And it wasn't a bad choice. It was really choosing between two good things. That's the hardest choice to make, right? 
mm-hmm. when it's between two good things. But I would advise anybody who's in that situation. I knew in my heart that the thing I had passion about, the thing I really wanted to go after wholeheartedly was to be on the air. And I would advise anybody in a situation like that, when you have that kind of choice to make, and you know as clearly as I did, well, I think I'll make more money if I take choice A, but I'm really more passionate about choice B. Mm-hmm. Take choice B. That's my advice. So how does money fit into the equation, though? Because I think like money is one of those things that, I mean, if we all go to work, we all got to make a living, I'd prefer to make more than less, yeah. but I also don't want to wake up Monday morning, make a lot of money, but hate my life. So how do you kind of balance that where like money and passion, you know, cross paths there? Well, I think we have to take the long view of our decisions. Had I chosen to stay with the on-air gig, I would have found ways to make more money. And I have friends to this day who are still on the air in the dying radio business, but still making really good money. Right. And you can be entrepreneurial with inside a company and you can be entrepreneurial even within inside a company that's very strict in what they will allow you to do. And I think, so you have to think of it that way. And you also have to think of what you just said. Is it more important for me to make more money or is it more important for me to be happy? Now, If it's a choice between living below the poverty line and making enough money to support your family, then you got to support your family, but that's temporary. And I think the long view is you're better off to make less money now in the short term so that you can be involved in the thing that you're passionate about that you were, I believe, crafted to do. That's why you desire to do it. You were created to do that thing or something like it. And then over time, I believe the money part of it will equal out. I think you'll end up actually making more money. And along the way, I would advise you just stay out of debt. That's probably the biggest dream killer in existence is debt. Right. I would 1000% agree with that. That's where I mentioned to you right beforehand, we're getting ready to move to Nashville. By the time people listen to this, we'll already be there. And the big reason we've been able to do that is because we've been debt for many, many years now. And so we're not handcuffed by, well, we're stuck in this house or we're stuck in this situation or we're stuck in this business or career because I have to make the payment on the car that I couldn't afford in the first place. So yeah, not having debt makes a huge, huge difference. So you're doing the DGA thing for a little bit. Then you switch over to the management side. You start, it sounds like you're still doing a little bit of the copy writing, are you immediately, once you're doing the copywriting, is it immediately resonating with you that this is, I really am good at this and I feel like people like it and it's connecting and the customers, the clients, they like it, the listeners are resonating with it. Is it just kind of this immediate connection for you? It was because within the company, the way I rose up through the management ranks was I kept writing these. I didn't really know what I was doing. I thought of them as memos or reports. Uh They were really more like white papers or sales letters for my ideas about the company that I was working for. I I had an idea about what we should do with our internet efforts before most radio stations had an internet effort. And I wrote, it was like 20 pages long, and it was really a sales letter, like a direct sales copywriter. I wrote it in that style because I loved that style that Jay Abraham and all those guys used with the, you know, lots of subheadings in the text and it was broken up into smaller, easier to read pieces and it led you through a logical argument to an inevitable conclusion. And I just found that to be a great way to be persuasive. Even though I wasn't selling something, you know, a product for dollars, I was selling my ideas. And every big advance that I made inside the radio business and every successful promotion we had with our stations and every successful promotion we had for advertising clients started with one of those kind of documents as I outlined what we were going to do, selling me on it and selling the people that were involved in it and making the decisions about it. And so 
it did resonate with me and I realized I really love this. I enjoy doing it and I'm good at it. But you were in the business for 27 years and, and granted you were doing a variety of different things during that time. But how long were you kind of wrestling with this idea of, okay, I'm doing this copywriting thing for, and it's a, a key skill set of my position. I like radio, but I see it's got some troubled waters ahead of it. How long are you wrestling with the decision to maybe go out on your own and maybe just pursue the copywriting thing full time? Well, I wrestled with that decision probably for two to three years before I finally decided I was going to get out of the radio business. Um, and what really was the domino that, that pushed everything forward was I went to a workshop at Seth Godin's office in New York. Mm-hmm. And you had to pay, you had to donate to a charity, and I forget how much it was, but I think it's a lot more now if you do the same kind of thing because, you know, he's more famous. Sure. Um, but uh, it was still a big thrill because he had a couple of books out and he was really well known. And uh, so there was 12 of us, as I remember, that went to his office which was the coolest office I had ever been in because it had no walls and it was in like this lofty warehouse kind of space and it was filled with toys and computers. And it was just, and and the fanciest coffee maker I'd ever seen in my life. (laughs) Um, And so we had this whole day with Seth Godin and everybody got to ask him a question and he shared some stories with us and he would answer our questions. And when it came to be my turn, I asked him, you know, Seth, I'm in the radio broadcasting business. What would you advise us to do if we're in the radio broadcast business? And he said, I would advise you to think about what you're going to be doing when you're out of the radio broadcasting business. <laughs> I was like, oh, that is not wow. what I expected to hear. But it really, that was a, a watershed moment for me because I realized he was right. I needed to figure that out. And so that was the two months prior to you leaving or when was that? No, that, that would have been, that was actually three years before I finally quit the radio business. And the reason it took so long, there's a couple of things that were going on. First of all, I had left one radio company and joined another. And my son was in his last couple of years of high school. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do anything to shake things up while he was going through that. So I took this job with this new radio company, traveling around to different markets, uh, helping them with their programming. And it was odd because we didn't have any stations in the town where I live in Spokane. So every bit of work I did was either online, over the phone, or I traveled. And that gave me lots of downtime during my off hours to work on this copywriting business. And when I finally got serious about it was I was in the Anchorage, Alaska, and I was in the Borders bookstore. And I read this book, Sitting in the Bookstore by Bob Bly, who's a great copywriter. And the book was called, at the time, I think it was called How to Make $85,000 a Year as a Freelance Writer. I think the title has changed now. I think it's now how to make $100,000 a year as a freelance writer. Inflation. Yes, exactly. Uh, But I read the whole book, and it was about being a direct response freelance copywriter. And I remember I slammed the book down on the table in the cafe there in the Borders bookstore, and I said out loud, I can do that. And I looked up, and other people were staring at me like, who is this wacko? Uh, And uh, so then I left the the bookstore. I bought the books. I felt guilty for having read it and not paid for it. And I immediately went back to my hotel room and put up a quick little web page offering my copywriting services to people who would be willing to pay for it. And within a few days, I had my first client and they paid me $400 to write some copy. Which I assume at the time, I would assume that you're making you know decent money in, in the radio business and management. But I assume that that $400 was everything. It validated, it, validated it was, the whole thing. Yeah, it was astonishing because, you know, Grant, they didn't pay you to write copy in radio. That was just something you did as part of your job. I I had no concept for that. And the fact that somebody would pay me $400 just to write something was, that was all the belief that I needed to say, I can, I can actually do this. So I talked with my wife about it and we 
came to an agreement. And the agreement was I would work on the copywriting business in my spare time. I would not steal from my company by working during business hours on this, on my own stuff. Right. I would take vacation days and go to conferences and seminars and workshops to get better and to meet people. And when my copywriting income equaled my radio income, I would be free to quit the job and just be with the business. Because, you know, she wanted security. She didn't want sure. to. Yeah, and I don't blame her. I mean, the radio business is not exactly the most secure business in the world anyway. Right. So we made that agreement. And it pretty quickly happened that the two incomes were equal. But there's an interesting phenomenon that happens when your income doubles, Grant. And that is you become very reluctant to cut it in half again. Yes, 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 yes. And so that stretched out the decision another six months because I just couldn't bring myself to cut my income in two. And finally, it was becoming more and more obvious to me that I was running myself into the ground because I was working like 120 hours a week. And so I tendered my resignation from the radio company and I was concerned. I thought, you know, what happens if I do this and then I lose all my clients the first month I'm on my own? Sure. But as it turned out, our income tripled that first month. And it's been, you know, it's been a profitable business that's never failed to make us six figures every single year since the day I left the radio business. How long were you doing basically double duty between the radio and the copywriting? That was probably about a year. Okay. So I guess my question then is for people that maybe listen to this who are in that spot of I'm starting to ramp up my side thing, but I still have my full-time thing going. You spent a year of working basically what would be the equivalent of two full-time jobs. Yep. And yeah, you made good money at the time because you were doubling it, but you were also just killing yourself. Yep. But I guess hindsight... Would you say that that sacrifice that you made for the year, both professionally and personally and relationally and with your family, that that year was worth where you're at today? Absolutely. You know, it's like Dave Ramsey says, if you're willing to live like nobody else is willing to live later, you'll be able to live like nobody else is able to live. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I held on to that. I mean, I listened to that guy every day while I was in that transition because we had him on a radio station. So (laughs) It was See, like I was, I, was do, I was working, but I was also using him as fuel to keep me going. Yep, for sure, for sure. So how did you pick up that very first client uh, for copywriting? Um, I found this online forum that was a discussion forum about marketing. And I had this thought that, you know, all these people come here and they want other people in the forum to look at their website and, and how their sales page looks. And I just offered to do free critiques. And so when somebody would post this, the link to their site and say, take a look at this and tell me what you think, I would go look at it. And I would offer a few critique points on the forum. And in my signature line, you had to be careful. And you still have to be careful about not spamming forums, trying to sell stuff to people on the forums because sure. that's frowned upon. But I did have, usually you can put a signature line in your postings that'll have your name and maybe a link to your website or something. And so mine just said, Ray Edwards, copywriter. And then there was a link. It said, Click here to get your free copy critique. And so I immediately started getting requests for a free critique. And I had to systemize this because I was working a full-time job. So what I did was I created a checklist of things that I knew were probably going to be wrong with most of the sales pages I saw. Mm -hmm. And I just had to fill in the blanks with every critique because it was usually the same stuff. Your headline's bad. You don't have enough copy. It's poorly written or it needs more bullet points or it was just a, a several things that were always, almost always true. And then I would give them suggestions about, I would rewrite this part of the copy like this and just give them pointers in the right direction. And then at the end of that critique, I had a paragraph that said something like, if you want somebody to do this for you, if you don't have the time or inclination, I'd be willing to do it for you. And I've attached an estimate of what the job would be. 
And so then I attached an estimate for the work that I was proposing to do for them. And I was pretty cheeky. I also attached an invoice. <laughs> Clever. And a friend of mine says, here's how I know who my clients are. I just invoice people and whoever pays the invoice, those are my clients. <laughs> and so thank you, Dennis McEntee, for that little insight. That worked. Uh, but I, uh, that's what I did. And I, that's how I got my first client. And she sent me $400. And I, frankly, I was astonished, Grant, because I thought, this person just sent me $400 through PayPal and has no idea who I am. Right, right. It's never met me. Yep. Purely by the power of the copy that I wrote for myself about my services, she was willing to pay that $400. And then my prices started to go up from there. I get paid significantly more now, but that's how it started. But I think that's a great point in the story, though, is that, you know, a lot of times, one of the things we talk about on the show a lot is we look at where people are today. And, you know, as a, in terms of copywriting, you're on top of the mountain, you can charge, you know, significant figures for what it is that you do. But realize that's not always the case that that started with a $400 job that you found randomly through a forum. And so I think it's important for people to note that, yeah, someday you may be able to charge significant for your services or for your product. But at some point, though, you have to start by getting someone to pay you $400 for this thing that you're still trying to figure out along the way. Absolutely. And, you know, I've known people who went a lot faster than I did in raising their fees. And I've known people who've gone a lot slower. But the fact is, I wouldn't get too caught up in worrying about that. I think if you can just get started. In fact, I wrote a book called Just Get Started. And it's about not making excuses for why you can't do something and not being perpetually stuck in getting ready to get ready mode but just getting started and do something. And that's what I did. I hung out my shingle. I posted some things on some forums and I started writing copy. And uh, was I perfect? No. I, my, those first few pieces of copy that I wrote for different clients, I got lots of them back from people saying, well, you, uh, that's, that, you totally missed the point. That's not what we do or yeah. that's not what we offer or we don't like this. Or, and so I, I had to go through that learning phase. And then I had to learn stuff like you know, how to deal with clients. Some of them, believe it or not, are not nice. And some of them don't pay and some of them are wonderful to work with. And you just have to start learning how to recognize who you're a good fit for and who you're not. And anybody who's starting a business like the copywriting business that I'm describing or any like web designer or service provider, I highly recommend a book by a man who's a friend of mine. His name is Michael Port and his book is called Book Yourself Solid. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a fantastic book. I, I met him in Denver. We were both speaking at a conference uh, some years ago. And he gave me a copy of his book. And it, it literally, I know people say this all the time, but this is true. It changed my life because it changed the way I thought about how I approached getting clients. And I would totally agree with that. Uh, that's a book I've read. I've read several years ago as, as a public speaker. And if you're in the service-based industry of whatever form, whether it's copywriting or speaking or whatever, yeah, Book Yourself Solid is a phenomenal book. In fact, we had Michael on the show just a couple episodes ago. So we'll have to link up to that in the show notes as well. So oh, that's, hey, that's fun. I'm telling you about Michael Port. You've had him on the show recently. We have. We have indeed. So all the cool kids come to this show. So I got a couple other questions for you about copywriting, about writing in general. We got a lot of people that listen to the show that are going, okay, I'm inspired. I know I need to, let's just get this started. But what are some of my next steps? But I'm going to save those questions for the uh, the bonus round. So we're going to be coming back at that in just a second here. But Ray, before we wrap up, for people that are intrigued that want to hear more about you, we didn't even have a chance to talk about the Ray Edwards Show, which is a phenomenal podcast that people need to check out. So uh, where can we find out more about you? Just go to rayedwards.com and you'll find links to the podcast, a lot of free resources and free videos that we have available, lots of information about copywriting, 
And if you're interested in becoming a copywriter, we have a copywriting course that we're going to be releasing soon. It'll teach you how to write your own copy or how to be a freelance copywriter for hire and make some money that way. So lots of free stuff there, tons of value, I think. People tell me it's valuable, so I believe them. <laughs> and the Ray Edwards podcast is a, a great show. People definitely need to subscribe to, download a few episodes, check it out. Really good stuff there. So Ray, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, freelance writing. So we will uh, catch you over there at the bonus round. Cool deal. Boom. There you go. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Ray Edwards, a all around just good guy, entrepreneur, copywriter. Just a great story. I hope you enjoy that. You are inspired and encouraged by his story. As always, make sure you stop by GrahamBalden.com. You can check out the show notes, links, everything we discussed there. You can also download the bonus material that Ray and I, we chat around for another few minutes there. So if you are interested in writing and becoming a writer, we talk about a few more things specific to that. So you may want to download that. You can do that at GrahamBalden.com slash Ray Edwards. Hey, also, if you enjoy the show, we'd love for you to subscribe to it. You can subscribe to it right within the app wherever you're listening right now. You can do that with an iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you may be listening to podcasts. We'd love for you to uh, subscribe. Also, we'd love if you left us a, a rating and review. If you dig the show, you enjoy what, what it's about, what we're up to, that really helps other people to find the show, helps us to rank well. So those things help other people to find it. And so we'd love to hear what you think of the show. Hey, also, as always, feel free to email me, grandtograndbalden.com. Let me know what you're chewing on or wrestling with. If there's anything I can ever do for you, I'm more than happy to help you out. So appreciate you listening. Appreciate you hanging out with us. We'll be coming at you again real soon until then you're awesome thanks for listening to the how did you get into that podcast with grant baldwin don't forget to visit grantbaldwin.com for all the show notes and links discussed in today's episode we'll see you next time